the gate of heaven's wrath opened upon our land. Numerous troops moved forth from the land of the Turks. Their horses were as fleet as eagles, with hooves as solid as rock. Well girded, their bows were taut, their arrows sharp, and the laces of their shoes were never untied. Having arrived in the district of Aspurakan, they pounced upon the Christians as insatiably hungry wolves devour their food. Coming as far as the Basen district, and as far as the great estate called Bagarshawan, they demolished and polluted 24 districts with sword, fire, and captive-taking. This narration deserves many piteous laments and tears. They sped like lions, and like lion cubs, they mercilessly threw the corpses of many people to the carnivorous beasts and birds. God poured his wrath down upon us by means of a foreign people, for we had sinned against him. These are the words of the Armenian historian Aristatkis Lastiversi, describing the arrival of the Seljuk Turks in the Middle East. Like the Huns before them, and the Mongols to come, the Seljuks were a nomadic army on horseback, jettisoned out of the Eurasian steppe, and once let loose on the settled societies of the Eastern Mediterranean, they would form an enormous empire, the Great Seljuk Empire. But not without first undergoing a striking transformation. Just a few decades after Aristotle's description of a calamitous invasion akin to biblical punishment, another Armenian historian, Matthew of Edessa, described the Seljuks and their sultan, Malik Shah, in this way. Thus, Malik Shah reigned over the Persians, and being a kind and merciful man, was very benevolent towards the Christian faithful. The reign of Malik Shah was favored by God, his rule extended to all lands, and he brought peace to Armenia. This sultan's heart was filled with benevolence, gentleness, and compassion for the Christians. He showed fatherly affection for all the inhabitants of the lands, and so gained control of many towns and regions without resistance. The Sultan's empire extended from the Caspian to the Mediterranean seas. Malik Shah subdued all the states on this side of the Mediterranean, and there was no land which did not submit to his rule. Twelve nations together with their rulers became tributary and submitted to him. So that's quite a transformation. And considering Matthew was an Armenian Christian, such high praise for a Sunni Turk is surprising. You know, it may be news to you, but the Armenians and the Turks have never exactly been on good terms, to put it lightly. But Malik Shah was very different to his predecessors. His very name shows the variety of influences on his empire. Malik is taken from Arabic and means king, while Shah, which means the same thing, is taken from Persian. And the name evokes the ancient Persian title Shahanshah, or in English, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair, an ancient title from biblical times. But when altered to include the new religious language Arabic and applied to a Turkish ruler, it definitely reflects a medieval world in flux. Indeed, this blend of Turkish, Arabic, and Persian influences was the very foundation of the Great Seljuk Empire. An empire which marks the debut of Turkish domination over the Middle East, a state of affairs that will more or less last until World War I and the collapse of the Ottoman Turkish Empire. So that's quite an impact. But unfortunately for the Seljuks, Though their great empire was indeed influential, it was not quite that stable. Malik Shah will die in 1092, and his heirs will be so busy ripping each other to shreds that a group of Franks will be able to sneak in the back door and found the Utremer kingdoms, who will continue to aid in the decline of the once great Seljuk state.
Hello, and welcome to History of the Uchimer, Episode 4, Step by Step. The Eurasian Steppe spans thousands of miles, from the Danube River in Eastern Europe to the western edges of China. To the south, it gradually transitions into desert and the mountain ranges that separate it from Southeast Asia. And to the north, the land grows colder and colder until you're in the frosty Siberian tundra. It's a vast region of land, too dry to support lush forests or jungles, but too green to be considered a true desert. Life on the steppe is very different from life in the settled societies on its borders. The endless sea of grass and shrubs as far as the eye can see makes it very easy to get around and feed huge flocks of sheep. This encourages a pastoral nomadic lifestyle centered around the main mode of transportation, the horse. This ease of travel and a lack of attachment to any particular area also encourages another stream of revenue, raiding. Step nomads can easily dart in to ransack a community and then disappear back into the steppe with their goods. You can't really track them down either because they're never in the same place for too long. And this is not an exclusive role. Steppe nomads can go about leading their pastoral nomadic life, herding sheep and goats that graze on the bottomless supply of grass. But when the going gets tough, they can just as easily turn to pillaging as a way to make ends meet. And when the going gets really tough, life outside the steppe might start to appear more and more attractive. And what do you know? It turns out that growing up in the saddle makes for excellent horse riders, easily capable of overwhelming a settled agrarian community and setting themselves up as overlords. I like to picture the steppe as a blender with no lid on, churning faster and faster and faster until the contents burst out the top and plaster your kitchen in green smoothie. Over the course of history, and even prehistory, this patina of green smoothie, or steppe nomad invasions, has played a fundamental role in shaping the settled societies of Eurasia. A long time ago, in the murky days of the late Neolithic, as the Stone Age was giving way to the Bronze Age, and folks were just starting to figure out this whole writing thing, the steppe nomad blender started going just a little bit too fast, and a group of migrants spilled out into Europe. We still don't know exactly how they did it, whether they migrated en masse or just conquered and set themselves up as a leading aristocracy, but we do know that they completely transformed the cultural and linguistic landscape of Europe. Today, nearly all of the languages of Europe are descended from the language these steppe nomads brought with them, a language for which no historical evidence exists, but which can be proven by a comparative analysis of languages from India in the East to Europe in the West. Proto-Indo-European. Proto-Indo-European would splinter and develop into the linguistic smorgasbord of the Europe we know today. The Germanic languages, like Modern English and Gothic. The Italic languages, like Latin and her Romance Daughters. The Celtic languages, like Irish and Gaulish. The Slavic languages, like Russian and Old Church Slavonic. Ancient Greek and her modern descendants, and many more. The Proto-Indo-Europeans would also spread to the East, and there the language had evolved into even more languages, like Armenian, Sanskrit, Persian, and Hindustani. Not a bad turnout for a bunch of steppe nomads. They clearly must have exerted a near total dominion of the lands they conquered, because under this particular patina of green smoothie, it's very hard to see the original native culture of Europe before their arrival. Indeed, in Western Europe, the only remnant of a pre-Proto-Indo-European language is Eukara, the Basque language, holding out for millennia in the remote mountain regions of northern Spain and southern France. And in Eastern Europe, 
The only other language family, the Uralic languages, which include Finnish and Hungarian, also have their roots in the steppe. The ease with which steppe nomads could impose themselves on the so-called civilized world becomes clearer and clearer as we move forward in history. The Greeks channeled their fear of riders as comfortable on horseback as they are on foot into a mythological beast, the centaur. And Attila the Hun is a name which struck such fear into Roman hearts that it still lives on today. As early as the 7th century BC, in an attempt to protect themselves from invaders, the Chinese started to build walls and fortifications to separate themselves from the steppe. Eventually, all of these barriers would be unified into what we know today as the Great Wall of China. They basically tried to put a lid on the blender. A lid on the blender. So it's really not that big a surprise that we should have cause to deal with our own group of steppe nomads. The rest of today's episode will be dedicated to understanding the Seljuk Turks and their arrival into the Middle East. Before we get to it though, I want to shoehorn in my rough outline for the next few episodes. Now my original plan was to wrap up everything we needed to know about the Romans before the Battle of Manzikert last time. But I think that the apex of the Macedonian Renaissance was essential to understanding the Roman psyche going into Manzikert, so that took up most of the time. After Byzantium, my plan was to release this episode about the Seljuks, then do an episode about the Armenians, and then go into the Battle of Manzikert. Uh, if you don't know what Manzikert is or the Battle of Manzikert, don't worry, you'll find out. Anyway, I've changed my plan a little bit. Next time, I'll be releasing two episodes. Episode 1 will bring the Romans up to the elevation of Romanus Diogenes, the emperor who will lead Roman forces to their doom against the Seljuk Turks at Manzikert. And the second episode will cover Manzikert. Today's episode will end with the death of the first Seljuk Sultan, Tugrel. So the second episode next time will introduce the second Seljuk Sultan, Alparslan, and cover the battle both from the Roman and the Turkish side of things. After that, the following episode will focus on the Armenians. So much of what I have to say about the Armenians is from a post-Manzikert point of view, so we need to get past that first. And then we'll finally be going back to Fatimid Egypt to deal with the 50 years that bookend the rule of the Caliph Imam al-Hakim and the Armenian Fatimid vizier, Badr al-Jamali, the first true military vizier of the Fatimids. And then, the other big topics that we have left to cover before the First Crusade are the decade of mayhem in Byzantium after the defeat of Romanos Diogenes and the rise of Alexios Komnenos, as well as the various Norman invasions into the Balkans and Anatolia, and to the east, the slow disintegration of the Seljuks. Other developments that I'd like to fold in before 1096 are the development of the assassins, which spring from a schism in Fatimid Egypt, and the growing power of the Italian merchant cities like Venice. I'd also like to dedicate an episode to the environmental changes, which are driving a lot of the socio-political changes. So with all of that to deal with, I reckon we'll be at about episode 13 or so when Pope Urban II makes his speech at Claremont. It's a lot of background information, but I don't think you can really understand the environment the Crusaders will find themselves in when they take back the Holy Land without understanding the recent history of the thing. Anyway, that's my rough outline, subject to change. And now we'll go back to introducing onto the world stage, the Seljuk Turks. Starting with, what's a Turk? Before the advent of modern nation states, it can be really hard to lay down borders between groups of people. Nowadays, if you're born on this side of the border, you're one thing, and on the other side, you're another thing. Not so easy to figure out back then. 
And this is doubly true when you're talking about nomads who spend pretty much all day on the move. So instead, the deciding factor when it comes to figuring out who's who is less geographical and more cultural, and often specifically linguistic. Just like the Proto-Indo-European people are defined by their language, or rather by the various descendants of their language, the Turkic people are also defined by a common linguistic heritage. The Turkic languages today include obviously Turkish, but also Turkmen, Azeri, Kazakh, Uyghur, and many others. And Turk nomads from the steppe have had a profound impact on their neighbors in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. However, it can also be really hard to figure out the exact origins for steppe tribes, until slash unless they settle down and adopt a written language. Before they do so, we have the oral tradition they themselves pass down which is usually half-myth and full of leaders who live to be hundreds of years old, so not exactly Snopes.com worthy. And, well, we've also got the records kept by their neighbors, who aren't exactly unbiased or interested in historical accuracy. So as for the Seljuks, we're not exactly sure where they come from. Instead, we have to play a bit of historical Mari, trying to work out paternity, comparing and contrasting sources. Our two possible daddies are, in this case, the Oguz-Yabgu state and the Khazar Khaganate. The Oguz-Yabgu state was not exactly a consolidated state, rather more a group of loosely associated tribes. Indeed, the word Oguz refers to a tribal union, and it's disputable the extent to which their leader, or their Yagbu, actually controlled the various tribes within the federation. As you might be able to tell already, we don't have many sources for the Oguz Yabgu, which is a shame, because that name alone is enough to make me want to start a podcast just about them. Oguz Yabgu. Either way, the Oguz were located in what is now, roughly speaking, modern-day Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan, between the Caspian and Aral Seas. They were on the very edge of the steppe, and represented a transition between the hardcore nomads farther north and the settled society to the south, the Muslim Caliphate. Within the Federation, different groups fell on different points of the spectrum, from riding dawn to dusk nomads and tied to the land farmers. So the Oguz, taken as a whole, lived a semi-nomadic life, and Islam wasn't exactly foreign to them, though they seemed to have been primarily pagan, specifically Tengrist. As they migrate south and west, they will pick up more and more Persian cultural elements, and of course, the Muslim religion. So, roughly speaking, you can see them as both a geographical and temporal waystage, in between pagan nomads and sedentary Muslims. By the 11th century, though, the Oguz Yagbu state was no more, and many Oguz will be riding behind a Seljuk leader, who will lead them westwards and start their transformation into a settled empire. The Seljuks themselves, though, may not have originally been subjects of the Oguz Yabgu. To the northwest, between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea, was the Khazar Khaganate, or Khazar Empire. Khagan comes from Khan, which means king, and should be familiar to most people as part of the title Genghis Khan, or Universal King. Khagan specifically means king of kings, or emperor. This whole King of Kings thing is crucial to understanding the Khazars, as not all the members of the Khaganate were ethnic Khazars. The Khazars were just the head honchos. Inside the Khaganate, there were various other tribes, some of them also Turkic, and a lot like the Oguz, some of these tribes were more settled than others. 
And also like the Ogus, they were a bit of a buffer between pure nomads and settled societies. In this case, not only the Muslim Caliphate, but also the Christian Roman Empire to the southwest. It shouldn't be so surprising then that the Khazars would themselves adopt an Abrahamic faith. The only question is which one? Islam or Christianity? Yeah, the Khazars opted for splitting the difference and converted to Judaism. As the Khaganate wasn't particularly centralized, it's possible this was only a surface-level conversion that exclusively affected the Khazar elites. But yeah, the Khazars were Jewish. Eventually, though, the Kievan Rus from the west brought the Khazars to their knees and destroyed their capital Itil in 965. You remember the Kievan Rus, right? Scandinavian Vikings who settled around the area of Kiev in modern-day Ukraine? Yeah, you remember them. Arabic sources indicate that Oghuz Turks coming from the east also participated in the downfall of the Khazars. And it's around this same time we start hearing a very specific name, Seljuk. Although in the earliest sources, Seljuk is not a tribe or anything like that. He's a man. It's very possible that a Turk named Seljuk, or his father, Dukak, participated in the destruction of the Khazar Khaganates. But whether Seljuk and his family were originally subject to the Khazar Khagan or the Oguz Yagbu, eh. Our sources are mostly writing or passing down history from when the Seljuk Empire is already established. So any that outright state that the Seljuks were one or the other may just be trying to do a bit of myth building. You know, boost the family's pedigree. However, considering the prevalence of Judaism among the Khazars, it is noteworthy that Seljuk's sons had very Old Testament-style names. Mikael, or in its anglicized form, Michael, Musa, or Moses, Yusuf, or Joseph, and Israel, or Israel. So, it's certainly possible that the Seljuks came from within the Khazar Khaganate, and with the aid of Oghuz Turks from across the border, this Seljuk family rebelled against their king of kings. As the Khaganate descended into chaos and infighting, which is a situation we'll be coming back to in the future, the Seljuks made their way east into land controlled by the Oghuz Yagbu, where they entered into conflict with other tribes and built up their regional power before leading the Oghuz tribes under their banner westwards into conflict with the settled Muslim societies. What makes these distinctions even harder is that as this particular batch of green smoothie begins to spill out to cover the Middle East, the terms Seljuk, Turk, Turkmen, and Oghuz will become more or less interchangeable. In the sources, sometimes Turkmen are Oghuz who have converted to Islam, sometimes they're the same thing, sometimes they're all just Turks. In the early days, we're mostly dealing with sources writing from inside the settled societies, who don't necessarily know who these new arrivals actually are, or have any frame of reference for their internal divisions. Eventually, though, the Seljuks will formally adopt the name Turkmen for themselves and the Turkic peoples who fought for them. So from now on, we'll call this leading family the Seljuks, and we'll call their followers Turkmen. We'll leave the term Oghuz for the federation that many of the Turkmen came from, and we'll leave the term Turk as a general term for any Turkic peoples. All good? All good. So, all in all, Khazars, Oghuz, I suggest you find a way to split custody for now. Leaving aside their origins, what we know for sure is that in the 11th century, when they spring onto the world stage, the Seljuks are Muslim. Seljuk himself is supposedly the one who converted them to Islam. And at this time, they're being more or less led by two brothers, Chagri and Tugril. The OG Seljuk was their grandfather, and their father was Mikhail, Michael. 
But from this point forward, the Old Testament names disappear in favor of Turkish and Arabic ones. Already, inheritance is becoming an issue for the Seljuks. Mikhail's sons don't have total control over their followers, and they have to appease their family members by granting them land. They also have to compete for influence with other powerful members of the Seljuk clan. Among these are Tugrul and Chagri's uncles, Musa and Israel. Israel in particular was at first the most powerful of the Seljuks, but he was captured and imprisoned, and in the subsequent power vacuum, it was Mikhail's sons who took control. Though, some of Israel's direct followers continue to look to Israel's son, Kutulumush, as a leader. These followers of Israel became known as the Irakiyas, and we'll be hearing from them again. The Seljuks also have to fight for supporters, basically recruit among the various Turkmen tribes who elect to follow the Seljuks because of what the Seljuks can promise them. And this need to provide the Turkmen with food and riches will propel the Seljuks ever onward. Not an odd state of affairs for steppe nomad raiders. What is odd is that instead of just raiding, the Seljuks will settle down. Though many of their followers won't, and the Seljuks will have to continuously find new targets for the Turkmen to take on. It's this ballooning effect that will cause the great Seljuk Empire to swell up. But without direct control over the Turkmen, and with so much familial infighting, the balloon will eventually burst. Either way, this dysfunctional family is about to place nearly all of the Middle East under their thumb. Earlier, when I mentioned the steppe nomads' southern neighbor, I said the Caliphate. And that was a bit of an anachronism. As you should know by now, by the 11th century, the Abbasid Caliphate had completely collapsed, and their former lands in Khorasan and Transoxiana, roughly speaking the region of modern Iran, Kazakhstan, and Pakistan, were under the control of the Samanid Empire. The Samanids were of native Persian aristocracy, and as they broke away from caliphal control, they began a period of Persian cultural rebirth. The native Persian culture had been dominated by the Arabic Muslims since the 600s, when the last pre-Muslim Persian empire, the Sassanids, was crushed by the Rashidun Caliphate. No idea why the Persians love these S-names, Sassanid, Samanid. Dear listener, if you ever found an empire of your own, give it a name which stands out, alright? Anyway, these new guys, the Samanids, brought back the ancient Persian style of government as practiced by the old guys, the Sassanids, and merged it with the hip new religion of the day, Islam. This Persian revival will play a key role in shaping the culture of the region to this day, basically, although the Samanids won't live to see it. Apart from their unoriginality when it came to nomenclature, the Samanids also made a fatal mistake with their military. Like the Greeks with their stories about centaurs, settled societies lived in a sort of perpetual fear of steppe nomads, but they also recognized their usefulness. Steppe nomads made great mercenaries. But, just like Ibn al-Thumna and the Normans, sometimes your choice of mercenary can come back to bite you in the ass. The Muslims loved using Turks to round out their troops. They either paid them as mercenaries, or more often than not, bought them as slaves. The Arabic term for these slave soldiers was Mamluk. Whew, that was odd. I just got a sudden sense of terrible foreboding. Weird, that. So, as Muslim armies began to rely more and more on these slave soldiers, these Mamluks... Whew, there's that feeling of dread again. Anyway, as Mamluks started to become more and more a key part of Muslim armies, they also started to gain military and political power. The Samanids, thus, fell into a trap many other Muslim rulers will fall into. 
their Mamluks became too powerful to control, until eventually they were the ones running the show. However, the Persian elements the Samanids had brought back remained a key part of the new Turkish Mamluk state, the Ghaznavid dynasty. As I said, Persian elements and culture will indeed remain a strong force in the region. There's a reason Iran, to this day, speaks Farsi, the Persian language, and not Arabic. As for the Ghaznavids, though they tried their best to emulate their former masters in terms of governance and culture, their origins as slaves were definitely commented on by the new arrivals, the Seljuks. A historian writing in the service of Tugrul of the Seljuks contrasted the Seljuk origin with that of the Ghaznavids in this way. As for the genealogy of this Sultan Tugrul, its honor does not go back to a low slave and someone completely obscure, as others do. Oof. The Seljuk Ghaznavid beef wasn't limited to little jabs about parentage. As the Seljuks moved into Persia, their hit-and-run tactics proved deadly for the lumbering Ghaznavid forces, who, for no reason in particular, relied heavily on armored elephant forces imported from their domains in India. Which, while definitely an aesthetic plus, didn't exactly help them out on the battlefield. As the Seljuks gobble up land, though, they won't do away with the Persian foundation the Samanids laid down and the Ghaznavids copied. Instead, they will merge these elements into their culture, adopting Persian as an administrative language. That's on top of their native Turkic language and Arabic as a religious language. This meant that for the people on the ground, particularly those in urban areas less prone to a casual Turkmen raid, not much changed. New management, sure, but although the war had devastated the land and contributed to widespread famine, once it was over, say hello to the new boss, pretty much the same as the old boss. In fact, in 1037, Tugrul of the Seljuks took the city of Nishapur from the Ghaznavids, and he summoned the Qadi, or magistrate, for advice on how to run the city, stating, we are new men and strangers, and we do not know the Persians' customs. So humble. It is also at this point that the Seljuks made a move that permanently severed their connection with the steppe and any sort of nomadic lifestyle. They began to mint coins. And nothing says settled, civilized folk like producing coins with your face on them. So yeah, by this point, the Great Seljuk Empire is basically Frankenstein's creation. A Turkish steppe nomad core, heavily influenced by both the Muslim religion and Persian administrative traditions. In 1040, at the Battle of Dandanakan, in modern-day Turkmenistan, the Seljuks, who had been raiding throughout the region, put an end to the Ghaznavid forces in Persia. And in 1044, the Abbasid Caliph, Al-Qaim, formally recognized the Seljuks as rightful rulers. The Ghaznavids will stick around for a while longer, and spread farther east into India, bringing Islam with them. But that's definitely too tangential for us to get into, says the guy who spent a good chunk of this podcast explaining the Kurgan theory for the Proto-Indo-European homeland. Anyway, it's at this point that the Seljuks begin to move even farther west. They consolidate their holds over the whole of Persia, but still, although they are imitating the ways of sedentary empires, they have some very steppe-nomad needs as well. The Turkmen need to raid and move their flocks of sheep, which, of course, they bring with them everywhere, and these movements often dictate the course of action. In these early days of empire, the Seljuks are a bipolar force, torn between the immediate subsistence aims of their Turkmen followers and whatever lofty goals the Seljuk rulers have in mind for themselves. This chaos and intent is doubled by the fact that multiple Seljuk family members are running the show. Perhaps in an attempt to organize things, around the early 1040s, Tugrul divided up both the consolidated conquests and lands soon to be conquered. 
He and Chagri took the best picks, of course, lands that were already conquered. Whereas Kutulumush and the rest of the Iraqias were sent to the northeast, to Azerbaijan and the Byzantine-controlled lands of Armenia. This last decision might have been forced on Tugrel. The Iraqias were already starting to make raids into Armenia, something we'll definitely be touching on in our double-parter episode next time. Though, as Tugrel begins to consolidate his hold over western Persia, he also begins to show signs of being, if not the sole Seljuk ruler, at least the first among equals. But with this status come the challengers. Throughout his conquest of Iran and Iraq, Tugrel will have to deal with uprisings led by random cousins and internal coup attempts, one of which even had his wife in on it. Despite these challenges, after taking the whole of Persia, Tugrel, the Seljuks, and their Turkmen followers turned their gaze toward Iraq and the Abbasid capital of Baghdad. In Iraq, like everywhere else, the Abbasid Caliphate had been reduced to figureheads. This was doubly embarrassing because Iraq had once been their center of power. They'd built the city of Baghdad themselves, and now the Caliph was basically a prisoner within it. The reigning power was instead the Buyid dynasty. They were, like the Samanids, ethnically Persian, and also incorporated many Persian elements into their administration. But, to add one more wrinkle to the whole thing, the Buyids were Shia Muslim. This one fact placed them at irreconcilable odds with Sunni Muslims. Though much like the Fatimids, they were very hands-off with religion, and also promoted Christians to avoid Sunni-Shia conflict. And as for the Fatimids, you might be thinking the Buyids and the Fatimids were natural allies, both of them Shia, yeah? Alas, no. The Buyids were not Ismaili Shia, they were Twelver Shia. And so the big guy in Cairo, yeah, he wasn't their imam. Twelver Shias look to an occulted imam, or an imam that is in a state of metaphysical hiding and will one day return, along with Jesus. But for now, just keep on respecting him in absentia. The modern day nation of Iran is Twelver Shia, by the way. So obviously, the Sunni Muslim Abbasid Caliph was not exactly happy about the state of things, and so a deal was struck with the Seljuk Turks, much like the deal the Pope struck with the Normans. With support from the Abbasid Caliph, in the month of Ramadan in the year 1055, Tugrul entered the city of Baghdad. However, by this point, the Buyids had themselves been reduced to figureheads. The military power of the Buyids lay with their Turkish Mamluk army and its general, a former slave soldier himself, Al-Basasiri. That name refers to the city where he was freed, the city of Basa. His birth name was the very Turkish Arslan, meaning lion. When the Seljuks took Baghdad, Al-Basasiri wrote to the Fatimids and asked for support. And just about a year after taking the city, Tugrel was forced to abandon Baghdad. His Turkmen forces were supposedly on their best behavior, but they still managed to so piss off the locals that riots ensued and the Caliph himself had to intervene. So Tugrel moved his forces north to avoid further issues. Meanwhile, Al-Basasidi received from the Fatimids a ton of cash. And he put this money to good use by bankrolling the rebellion of one of Tugrel's cousins, Ibrahim Yinal. Ibrahim may have been funded by the Fatimids and al-Basasiri, but he also made good use of the growing resentment on behalf of the Turkmen. In taking Baghdad, Tugrul had prioritized his aims over the needs of the Turkmen. Iraq was not suitable for the nomad lifestyle, it was too arid, and the Turkmen's flocks of sheep suffered as a consequence. So, in return for their support, Ibrahim promised the rebel Turkmen two things. One, that they would never return to Iraq, and two, that he would never submit to his cousin, Tugrul. But hey, you know, you come at the king, you best not miss. And in this case, Ibrahim shot wide AF and ended up executed. 
However, Tugrul made sure to adhere to Turkic tradition that prohibited the spilling of royal blood when he had Ibrahim strangled to death with a bowstring. It's worth noting that while this seems harsh, this was actually Ibrahim's third rebellion, so given they'd already been through this whole thing twice before, I can't really blame Tugrul. Still, while Tugrul was busy dealing with this rebellion, the Mamluk general Abbas Asiri took control of Baghdad, and for one year the Fatimids had control, indirect control, but control nonetheless, of Baghdad. Finally. But I did say for one year. Tugrul soon came back and ousted Abbas Asiri. Though, once he did, he did not repeat his mistake. He gave control of the city to an emir and took his Turkmen troops elsewhere. Tugrul didn't get to enjoy his position of power for long though. For years after wrenching Baghdad out of Fatimid hands and securing Seljuk prominence, if not direct rule, over the regions of Iraq and Iran, Tugrul, the first Seljuk Sultan, rode off on his trusty steed to that cloudy step in the sky. To sum up his life, I'll take a quote from historian A.C.S. Peacock's The Great Seljuk Empire. His achievement is indubitable. The land subject to the Seljuks by his death spread from Transoxiana to the borders of Syria, from the Gulf far into the Caucasus. His role had been transformed from that of nomad chief to the greatest ruler in the Eastern Islamic world. However, for all Tugrul posed as defender of the caliphate, had grandiose Islamic and Iranian titles showered upon him, including the new coinage of Sultan, and held a court at which poets praised him lavishly in the Arabic he didn't understand, his room for maneuver remained limited by the ecological requirements of the Turkmen, on whom he continued to rely, and by the constant threat to his suzerainty from other members of his family. So there you have it, quite a rise to power. However, Tugrul left no sons, and so he appointed his infant nephew Suleiman as his successor. But with so many actual grown-ass adults around to contest this, Suleiman was quickly set aside in favor of his older brother, Al-Barslan, who had already inherited control of his father, Chagri's former possessions. In 1071, Al-Barslan will lead his forces in battle against the Byzantine Romans at Manzikert, leading to one of the most consequential Roman defeats in history. <laughs> <laughs> 